DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We are joined now by David Locke. His weekly interview is brought to you by the Murdoch Auto Team. David, good morning. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good. I am curious how much you think Game 2 is what this series really is because Donovan was back and that just changes everything. And so Game one's kind of a one-off. Or how much Game 2 at 141-129 that's also a game that isn't going to be replicated. And in some ways, the series is 1-1, but it hasn't really started yet. We haven't gotten down to what is a quote-unquote normal game. What do you think? So the area where I would agree with the last part of your comment, DJ, is that the, the foul trouble has dictated so much of this series and how the series is played. Um, with Mike Conley and Rudy Gobert going out at 54-50 while the Jazz were kind of surging in the third quarter of Game 1, and Dylan Brooks and Valanchunas being out of the game early in the first half. Um, however, when I went back, Donovan actually is directly connected to all six of those fouls. So Donovan drives the lane, throws a backhand bounce pass to Rudy Gobert, Valanchunas fouls. Memphis has a fast break. Donovan sprints the floor, gets up underneath Valanchunas, holds him out of the post just long enough so that Royce can come back in and bump out with Donovan. Royce now and has pushed Valanchunas out far enough. Royce gets there. Valanchunas elbows Royce in the face. Donovan drives the lane. Valanchunas comes over, bounce pass to Rudy. Rudy's going up for the dunk. Valanchunas has to come over and, and try to stop him, making a multiple action defensive play, which is not Valanchunas' strength, and he picks up his third foul. Donovan comes off a pick. Dylan Brooks tries to blow it up by by getting in between him and the pick, which is what he was doing to Mike Conley and Joe Ingles, and they weren't strong enough to handle it. Donovan's strong enough. Foul on Brooks. Second time, exact same thing. Foul on Brooks. Brooks overplays. Donovan drives. Foul on Brooks. So Donovan directly created all six of those fouls. Um, I also just thought everyone played a much better game. Um, the Jazz have a phrase called point five, where you need to make your decision of whether you're going to pass, shoot, or dribble in point five seconds, really basically make it before you get the ball. They executed that at a much better level. With Donovan on the floor, I think they can do that, whereas when Donovan's off the floor, our guys have a tendency to feel the burden of having to create the offense, and so I think they hold it a little bit and then try to go to work. Um, and so I do think game two is a representation. I, I, having rewatched game two, I think the Jazz feel what the Grizzlies are doing. I'm not particularly worried about the – I'm not actually particularly – I think the Jazz are fine in this series. And the Grizzlies are great. And I'm super impressed. And Taylor Jenkins is one of the best coaches in this league and should be in the coach of the year conversation. This is not in any way like a – I mean, if they don't – if the Jazz don't play well, if the Jazz don't come out with the energy in Memphis and they don't come out with the fight, and they, you know, something like that. But if the Jazz play, we'll be okay in this series. So you view Mitchell as the difference maker then? Yeah, I mean, he's your best. He really was tremendous in that game. And Mike Conley, oh, my gosh. That's one of the best displays of reading defenses and playing the pick and roll and, and what's going on I've seen in a long time. And so, you know, part of what you're doing defensively is you're trying to play, make people make certain plays. When Mike makes every single one of them, there's not a lot of answers left if you're Memphis at that point. Like, Mike was holy. I mean, Donovan is just breaking your defense and taxing you with his pressure and his ability. And, and Donovan was – Donovan, you know, we hear all the stories of Donovan and his film, and, like, Joe's been on the show with you guys and talked about how much film Donovan watches. Like, actually, in this game, it was really obvious. 
It was really obvious to me re-watching the game that Donovan's film study had paid off to him. He knew exactly what Dylan Brooks was going to try to do to him early in the game, and he got he drew fouls. He knew exactly what their pick-and-roll coverage was, and he reacted to it prior to you know setting them up really, really well. That work he puts in was evident in the rewatch. And then Mike Conley's reading of their pick-and-rolls, and they did a lot of really interesting coverages and... Um, brought people into the pick and roll from strange places. Uh, it wasn't traditional, and Mike was reading it the first time every time. It was awesome. So when I'm it not comes sure. to, I guess actually, I guess if you can either take that one of two ways, I could guess I could be a little concerned because I don't know that Mike Conley can be better than that. I don't know that a point guard can be better than that actually. So when it comes to Conley and re-upping him, and I know that discussion is down the road, but that game wins me over because, you know, we've all been around long enough to hear Jerry Sloan's words echoing, right, and value the 82-game guy, and the average NBA player plays 72. And I just think with Mike and the hamstrings, he shouldn't be playing back-to-backs at this point. He's had a problem with him for two years. He's in his 30s. So it kind of makes him a 65-game-a-year guy, and, you know, if there's any other injury, maybe it's 60, maybe it's 55, whatever. But you see what he's capable of doing in the playoffs, and you think, yeah, you just got to roll with that regular season stuff, whatever it takes to keep him healthy. And I know there's conversations about money, and I'm spending other people's money. But, uh, man, watching that game, too, I thought, whatever the issues, it's, it's worth it to get him back. So I generally agree with you, like, 95%. I'm just going to give the 5% here just mm-hmm. for the sake of better conversation. So the two conversation pieces that on this that have to be held are at what dollar figure, right? Yeah. There is a, there yep. is a breaking yep. point when you're 100%. in the luxury tax and, and he's 30 years old and it's not, and he's going to slow down, but his game, you know, his reads and his things are all going to be good. And Chris Paul's kind of generally proving you can keep doing this. The other one is he's really small and that's obvious right now. Like, you know, when Royce O'Neal is guarding John Morant, it's really different than when Mike Conley is guarding John Morant. And it's it's problematic. Like, Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert cannot leave Jonas Valanciunas. He's a beast. And they have to be on his body and touch, making contact with him the whole time. And so when Morant moves into the lane, Mike has to try to stay with him. And Mike's just too small. And Morant's not impacted at all by his presence in the slightest bit. And he's also, the other answer then is, well, then you do what the Jazz call, it's a late switch on that. But you can't late switch Mike Conley onto Jonas Valanciunas. He's just too small. So that is real. And Donovan's not very big. So there has to be a little evaluation as well on whether or not moving forward, two six-foot-one guards, one of which will be 33 years old, is actually the right answer. Now, I let me start where I, let me go back to where I started. I 95% agree with you. Um, but that last 5% is real. Okay, so you talk about that film study on Brooks. How much film study anticipation what Morant wants to do and where he wants to go can help them in defending him? And it's going to be interesting to see. So Morant is really, really, really left side dominant. Like, it's insane. Like, I think in the entire, so that little floater zone where he's like coming around and, you know, getting the ball in the, um, he gets in the lane, right? And he um, works it inside. He doesn't get all the way to the rim. He's taking almost nothing at the rim. 
and he takes that shot. He is, I think, and I was going to pull it up here. Um, I have it in my notes, but of course, at this exact moment, I'm not finding my notes. Um, he he has taken like 14 shots all year in that floater zone on the right side of the floor. 14. Here, here's the exact numbers. Okay. So within five feet of the basket, he took 506 shots. From five to like 12 feet on the left side of the floor, he took 58 and he made 48%. He took 120 from like eight, six, seven, eight feet to 12 feet straight away, 120. On the right side, he took 13. He only made three. Is there anything we can do that keeps him off the left side of the floor where he's at his most comfortable? He's always either coming straight left side or right to left side. And that, and then he takes the right-handed floater. That's his shot. And he, no one else has stopped in a, no one else has been able to stop, but in a one game regular season, that's unlikely. Is there anything we can do defensively to try to keep him a little bit more on the right side of the floor? And I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe he's just too quick and too, um, electric to be able to do that to him. But that would be something I would watch is like, how easily is he moving right to left on Saturday um, inside the paint? Can we restrict that movement in any way? The the other one I would just say is like, this is going to cool down a little bit. Like he's terrific and he's hot, but he's like 20 of 29 on floaters right now. Like that can't last. This is not possible. <laughs> so I know that's like, you know, I'd probably get punched by Quinn if I like, you know, was talking to him and I said, yeah, you're fine. Like that can't last. He'd be like, you know, great, easy for you to say. Right. But yeah. like it's, it, 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 it actually can't like, it's just not a, it's not a realistic thing for that to, for that to keep going like this. So he, he's going to start missing some shots and, and, at some point in time, he just happens to be on a roll right now. And I, I, you know, I don't know when they happen, but they probably won't happen as fatigue kicks in and some other things over the course of a season. It's just, you know, he, he's, but he's on fire right now. Let's, let's give him, he's awesome. Like, and it's John Morant versus, or Zion Williamson is going to be a super interesting debate over the course of their careers. Cause I, I, I I'm, I'm not sure. Like, uh, Zion is, is all that, but, um, Shaw's going to stay. I, I suspect Shaw stays healthier, and if he ever learns how to really shoot it, it's like over. So I'm curious. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of Jazz fans watching him go for 47, thinking, well, I watched that Warrior Laker game, and man, the Lakers sent AD. Granted, there aren't many ADs running around, but they sent AD out there to help double team and just get the ball out of his hands no matter what. What do you think about that, and what do you think about the fourth and fifth options who could be different players depending on who's on the floor? What do you think about the Grizzlies' fourth and fifth options for handling that if the Jazz ended up committing to that kind of thing? So I'm going to come from a totally different angle here. Mm-hmm. He took 20 free throws. That's my problem. But I might be all right with him getting 40. On floaters. We just got to keep him. We can't put him on the line 20 times. He's 8 of 10 in the first five seconds of the shot clock. Okay? So he's getting four runouts a game. 
Can we can we reduce that? Can we get that down to two runouts a game? Can we take his 20 free throws and get him to eight or to seven or to six? And then let him do his thing. And then Desmond Bain doesn't get shots and Melton doesn't get shots and Kyle Anderson doesn't get shots and Dylan Brooks gets fewer shots and Valanchunas doesn't. Valanchunas is the one that worries me. I don't want him going 10. We're double teaming and now you're shifting all over the place and Valanchunas goes 11 or 13. That we lose. That's how you lose. I know it's not as dynamic. It's not as interesting. It's how everyone loses us. It's interesting that we don't get this. This is how we beat everybody. You go do all this crap, and then Rudy goes 11 of 13, and you talk about everybody else beating you. No, Rudy beats you. But Valanciunas can do the same thing. He's very talented, and if we're not careful, he'll go get 11 dunks or nine dunks or six dunks and five layups because we're so worried about John Morant. The key play to me of the entire game the other night is the one time Rudy steps up, Valanciunas gets a dunk. Now, he also gets a technical on it. But the really reason he gets a technical is Rudy's so late coming back to get to him that Rudy's actually under the rim. So when he comes down, he hits Rudy in the face with an elbow. But that's the one play where Rudy stepped up to deal with Morant. It was a dunk. I want Morant shooting the floater rather than Valanciunas dunking or a wide-open three. Just stop fouling him. If he gets 40, he gets 40. We'll win. So basically, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is, you know, let Morant do his thing, but essentially keep Brooks and Valanciunas under control and they don't have enough to beat you. Yes. That's why my question was about guy four and five, because I wouldn't think that there's any reason, you know, to go double and get in a scramble and get beat by Brooks and get beat by Valanciunas. So it's more maybe the way the Rockets defended the Jazz, where you turn it into a game of, uh, you know, four on five and whoever their uh, Ricky Rubio is, you know, who, who when they're in the game can be treated that way where you can just constantly help off that guy. So it's Kyle Anderson, but he's so good off the ball, I'm not sure you can do it. Like the two times Bogey did it, he got beat back door. Mm-hmm. Andy Larson had an interesting note um, in which during the regular season, I, I'm not going to get this quite right, but he had an interesting note that during the regular season, Memphis's points per possession off John Morant passes on the pick and roll was like one point two and Morant shooting was like point eight. I still think that's right. Do you at all dunks. Oh man, I thought I had it. <laughs> ah, I'm ahead. You're behind two to one. No, that first one didn't count. <laughs> it did too. No, that was, ruling from the judge. No, that was on me. <laughs> no, that first one was on me. You're tied one one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, oh, this is such well, playoff are you, refereeing. Are you, are you guys going to explain what's happening here, by the no, way? No, no, no. Yak is right. It's it's tied 1-1. No, we'll, uh, we'll I keep that, Yak. There's a good drop for you. Yak is right. DJ can – he'll surge in the lead before we're done. Uh, how much do you keep an eye on what's going on on the other side of the bracket relative to what it means to the Jazz, meaning – if the Mavs get this series over quick, how much impact would it have on the Jazz if they didn't get the series over quick? Well, I think that's important. Um, yeah, I think I think that's very important. I mean, part of being the number one seed is you're supposed to get your series done quickly so that you get rest and then you have an advantage going to the second seed. But unfortunately, without Donovan in game one, that didn't happen for us. Right. So, um, um, 
So, yeah, I think that's important. Interesting that Clippers, I was looking at the line say Clippers are favored tonight. Yeah. Do you buy that? Or do you think the Mavs are going up 3-0? Or you think it's the desperation the Clippers get a game here and then ultimately lose the series? Pretty interesting if they don't, right? Doesn't look like it's Doc Rivers' fault. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it looks like Kyle, Low- Kyle Lowry's the winner in this game to me. Explain. Yeah. Right? Kawhi gets all the credit for Toronto's championship. Maybe it was actually Kyle Lowry's leadership, and Kyle Lowry's the guy, and the Kawhi actually isn't the guy who can lead a franchise with that personality. Hmm. Interesting concept that you would go to Lowry as opposed to, well, I guess maybe just the team, but I guess they go to the next best player or the perceived whoever the best player is. Yeah. But see, I think the Clippers, for being down 0 2, I don't really count them in a despair. Now, if they lose game three, certainly, but I still think they've got a decent shot in this series. Maybe I'm up in the well, night. Well, interesting. I was on. Uh, this is I don't know if all lines are the same, so I'll, I'm just going to quote the site so I'm being accurate. So I was at Bet Online um, today. The Jazz have better odds to win their series in the Mavericks right now. Huh. That's crazy. Uh huh. That's really crazy. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. It's that much respect for the Clippers. And if it's not Lowry who deserves the credit, is it Serge Ibaka? And I think that's the reason it's going to Lowry, because Serge is another veteran who'd been deep in the playoffs and all that. And so in Toronto, Kawhi Leonard could do his quiet loner thing, and it didn't disrupt the team because they already had a strong team chemistry in place, and they'd been so close, and they put up with Kawhi because they thought he'd put him over the top, and with the help of some warrior injuries, he did. But the Clippers had a different vibe going, and it led to conflict, and they'd never all gotten on the same page. And maybe it's not fair to expect it of Ibaka, but because he hasn't been able to be that bridge, at least to this point, it doesn't look like it, Lowry's getting all the credit. That he was the guy who was able to to bridge whatever chemistry issues there were. You know, the Clippers just are interesting. I mean, maybe they'll come back and win. This is, you know, we're just speculating. It's interesting. They're, one re- they're not the team we've – I've loved them all year. I thought they were going to win it. I thought they were the best team all year. Um, the two best teams I, other than the Jazz all year long to me were the Clippers and Denver – um, before Murray got hurt. Um, and I actually, well, before Murray got hurt, I actually thought Denver was going to win the West. Um, the Clippers, though, part of what I loved about them the most was Serge Ibaka's addition as a, fo- as a five, and I thought Luke Kennard created the ball movement. Well, Luke Kennard's not playing, and Serge Ibaka played eight minutes. So... And now their small lineup is Marcus Morris instead of Serge Ibaka. And Morris is a great three-point shooter, and he's interesting. But I, I like what Ibaka does more. And so I, they're not the team I thought they were. Um, or the team, that, the team that I made up in my head that I fell in love with is not the team that actually has materialized throughout the season. Is that because, I don't know, it's interesting. The Luke Kennard inability to play to me is really interesting because I, I now it could be two things. His knees are bad and maybe they're really bad. Um, but I really like the way Luke Kennard plays as a complimentary player, but maybe you can't be a complimentary player on that team. It's so stagnant. There's not enough ball movement out of your stars. 
And so, and I love how Serge Ibaka plays. And I love, and I thought Nicholas Batum was going to be their point guard because he moved the ball. But maybe if you don't have a collection of ball movers, it doesn't matter if you have a ball mover. I don't know. I've got to figure out, like, I, when that team was rolling out, you know, a collection of Batum and Kennard and Kawhi and Paul George and Zubak and Ibaka and, 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 the, and Morris, and that was your seven, and I'm probably Patrick Beverly could play a little for all you want. Like, to me, that was an incredible group, and they started to move the ball and swing it at endless length, and, but that's not who they are right now. And so I don't know. And I also would say the other one is the narrative on them was that they had terrible team chemistry last year because the superstars came in and the old guard of Beverly, Harrell, and Williams you know, wanted the respect they deserved in their minds for being the eighth seed the year before and all their gritty and play and that there was this huge divide inside the team. Well, they got rid of basically all those guys other than Beverly, who they tried to get rid of, but they couldn't through trades. And so they went and cleaned house on all those guys to, like, fix the chemistry. And and I bought into that narrative, too, that once they got rid of Harold and Lou Williams, they would – and you know, and Beverly was minimized in the locker room by Rondo, that they would be fine internally. Um, but that doesn't seem to be, maybe maybe that's not true either. Well, David, we'll leave it right there. We appreciate can, can the time. I, we'll hear you on the I, call can Saturday. I, can, can, and apparently yeah, can, you can. Can I, can I take a second here? Sure. I, I understand the quandary we're all in as entertainers in this business. That no listener wants us to be doing every segment and belaboring our, our shows on the racist behavior of certain fans in our arena. But we need to talk about it because it's happening regularly. You listen to players that played in this league and they all talk about their experiences in Salt Lake City in these arenas. Not all of them, but plenty. We've had the Russell West. We've had the racist fan incident with Russell Westbrook. We had the racist fan last the other night with John Morant. And I understand that me and you and PK, as entertainers and doing shows and needing to get ratings, that nobody wants to wake up this morning and listen to us belabor this point. But we have to talk about it, and we have to start the denial that it exists. The only way we're going to eradicate it from our community and be the community we want to be is to admit that it exists. Our most common line is, it's just a few bad apples. It's not who we are. Guess what? Everywhere I go today, I'm going to be asked about it. I've got five different calls. I promise you it comes up in every call in some way, shape, or form. It's becoming who we are. Whether we want it to be or not, we need to be actively against this type of behavior, and we do need to talk about it, and we do need to educate those who don't understand the impact of it, and we do need to address it. I'm not criticizing either of you on this. I did the same thing today. On my podcast, I took 95 seconds to open the show. I'm sure you've already done it. No one wants us to belabor it every minute, but we have to talk about it, and we have to admit it, and we can't whitewash it or push it aside and claim it's just a few bad apples because it's embarrassing I'm personally embarrassed, and I wake up today as a representative of the Utah Jazz, mortified and cringing on how much I have to deal with this today. We've got to collectively, as a group, work together as a group, not individually in our own little bubbles, to become the community we want to be. Well, I think it's pretty clear, because we've got multiple examples now, that you're going to get kicked out of the arena, and if you're a season ticket holder, you're going to lose your season tickets. But I think merely not saying that doesn't change the underlying attitudes that I think you're probably carrying around, or you wouldn't be saying stuff like that. 
So it kind of drives it underground, but it doesn't really change the way you behave and the thoughts you're carrying and how you interact with people, you know, every minute, every hour, every day, blah, 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 down the line. I don't really know what to tell you about that because I don't have a great answer for what's going to make people change that. I mean, right now I don't have a great answer for what's going to make people stop saying it in the arena, let alone stop thinking it and carrying it around with them. So you're going to get kicked out of the arena. The threads I saw on social media, people were having plenty of discussion about it yesterday, and it was largely a lot of people liked interacting with uh, Morant's family, and then a couple people got way out of line and apparently got called out by the people in the section, so I guess that's encouraging. Um, But it's still happening, and that's awful. Right. Yeah, no, calling them out in the section is great. That's that's the start of the active. I mean, that's part of being the active anti-racist. You know, that's what we want to be. Like, that's good. And, you know, the comments are so disgusting, I can't even imagine how somebody how somebody even thought about it. Like, like it's crazy. But it's clearly, right, David. Like, there's, there's something to it. Yeah, we got to run. We appreciate it. We will talk to you again next week. Sounds good. David Locke will be on the call. Game three, Saturday night. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.